they were sort of to some extent can fit in e either way you know as we mentioned earlier on the beauty of labor is that it's private land um, and you can get out of the vehicle and get out on foot sometimes we are the first stop for people so often people uh, will get off their international flight they might have a night in nairobi and then and then they'll come up here but more often than not uh, we are at the end of somebody's safari. So somebody might have been down in the Masai Mara first, they might have been in Amboseli, uh, they might have been somewhere else where the main activity is game driving. And so they, they come up here and then that's when we get them galloping across the plains on horses and camels and on foot and helicopters and you know whatever it may be that they, that they have um, got in their mind to do. Welcome to part two of our talk with Callum and Sophie from Labour House. As you've just heard, they have a wide range of safari activities and we will discuss these further a bit later. But in this episode, our main focus is on Lewa as a wildlife conservancy, protecting endangered black rhinos and gravy zebras, amongst other wildlife. Welcome to the Wildlife and Wilderness Travel and Safari Show, the world's first podcast on sustainable tourism and wildlife safaris worldwide. This show is for everyone interested in travel in the natural world, ecotourism, conservation and adventures in our planet's wild places. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Banner, biologist and director of the travel company Wildlife and Wilderness, providing outstanding holiday experiences to thousands of clients for almost 25 years. If you are planning a safari or want to get in touch, then do drop us an email to podcasts at wildlifewilderness.com or visit our website at wildlifewilderness.com. In the last episode, we finished by talking about community projects from Lewa House. Let's pick up the story here with the history of the Wildlife Conservancy. That, that's a nice point to bring us on to Labour Wildlife Conservancy then, which uh, Labour House sits in the heart of it. But um, the Wildlife Conservancy for Labour effectively functions separately, doesn't it? Can you tell me something about its history and, um, of course, its importance in the conservation of black rhinos and the other species that you have there? So, yeah. do you want to go? So, Callum, do you want me to do that? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So, um... Yeah, so where should I start? <laughs> so we as a family um, have this legacy. My great grandfather said, you know, he left it to my grandparents and said, right, you can do whatever, just make sure you leave room for the wildlife. And he sailed off into the sunset. Um, so they they dutifully did that and continued. And as I mentioned, expanded the community programs and stuff like that. Um, so we were uh, we were probably known as oddballs and uh, fast forward to fast forward to the late 70s now up until the late 70s there was big game big game hunting here and it was run by a yeah a pretty small group of people and they prided themselves on their ethics and uh, their their conservation and they would lease areas of land off the government and they would look after that land and look after the wildlife there and and hunt it with their with their clients now uh, a hunting band came in overnight in 1977 and um so they still had their operations and they had to go somewhere so a lot of them went to other parts of africa and that left vast swathes of this country open with nobody looking after it it was outside the national parks the national government uh didn't have the the capabilities to to look what was happening and um it was just a free-for-all and callum's figures about the uh, black rhino in 1975 and the black rhino in 1985 
came out at that time. So yeah, in 1975, they were estimated 20,000 black rhino. And in 1985, I think there were 300 and something, two or something. And um, that scale of destruction was, yeah, happened across all species. It's just that we happen to know the rhino numbers. Yeah. Um, but it really was extremely detrimental in a very, very short, short period of time. Um, now, onto that scene at that time in the early 80s came a lady called Anna Mertz. Anna uh, was a lawyer who'd worked in, spent a lot of her life in Ghana in West Africa. And she had witnessed the whole scale slaughter of wildlife in West Africa in the 60s. And she and her husband came to East to Kenya to retire. And she arrived and and saw the same pattern that she had witnessed 20 years earlier in West Africa and thought, oh my goodness, I can't, I can't bear this. I've got to do something. And uh, Kenya had been very famous for its density of black rhino. And so for no other reason than that, she thought, well, I better do something about the black rhino. So she uh, badgered the government to let her go and collect the last wild rhino she could find. And that took a while. Um, uh, but she was very persistent and did get her way. And then she suddenly got her way and actually hadn't organised anywhere to put the rhino. So she asked around and uh, people said, oh, we'll go and talk to that funny family over there because they, they're ranchers, but they're quite partial to wildlife. <laughs> um, so she came and spoke to my grandfather. He's who, uh, <laughs> um, he pretty much said yes. Um, I think I asked her what her qualifications were and that was it. <laughs> she said, I've got 300 black rhino. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so they had to, they had to put up a fence. So they fenced off 5,000 acres initially. So they had to put up a secure fence. They had to create a security team who were able to protect the rhino um, all before they were given the green light to actually go and find a rhino to put in this area. Right. Um, so it was a it, it was a pretty risky venture, um, really. Uh, but I think Anna was so passionate, and it you know it completely dovetailed with our our ethos as a family. And so yeah, off we went on a new adventure conserving <laughs> the black rhino. Um, now my, my uncle Ian Craig, um, at the time was, was managing, he was a young man. He was managing the, uh, the, the ranch and the cattle and, um, actually still to this day, um, the, the, uh, the Maasai pastoralist young man's role in life is, um, is as a warrior and as part of their duties they they protect their family but they also go and enrich their family by uh, taking cattle from other people so uh, stock theft was something that happened fairly frequently and it still happens to this day um, but he because this was you know an issue he had to contend with he had uh, had further built up relationships with the communities around labor because for the same reason if the cattle were going to be walked out they had to go across somebody else's area and if he could get those people on on side then he was going to be one step ahead yeah um so he had built up this this network of, of friends around and so it was a pretty short step to then 
to creating a sort of security network uh, around the around the black rhino and and really that's continuing to this day he has you know more latterly set up something called the northern rangers trust which is um helping pastoralist communities to the north um uh, give, give them a sort of governance structure so that and uh so that they can sort out their their yeah their sort of tussles over resources in a in a more political way as opposed to a, a warlike way and the benefit of that is obviously the people and um and and the byproduct of that is is the wildlife yeah. Um, so that's that's what he's gone on to do. So it is everything's a ball and it's it's a it's it's rolling on in the same vein. Um, yeah. And it gets bigger and bigger. <laughs> um, so the Wildlife Conservancy was born what by you, from your uncle's work then effectively. Yeah. So so Anna Mertz was the Anna Mertz was a spark and she had tremendous drive and passion. And so uh yeah in in partnership with yeah with my uncle um they they successfully found rhino they successfully brought them here the rhinos successfully bred they doubled the size of the conservancy 10 years later um and oh no sorry five years later and 10 years after the original rhino sanctuary in 95 we decided to uh take down the fence around the 10,000 acres of the rhino sanctuary and make the whole ranch into a conservancy. So in 1995, the uh, the conservancy as it is today came into came into being. And it's managed separately to. Yeah. So so basically, again, it's a series of evolutions, really. Uh, fast forward to 2007, 2008 with the credit crunch. Um, we uh, we rely a lot on donors and uh, then we rely totally on donors and with that credit crunch a lot of the donor funding dried up and suddenly we were left sort of holding the baby um, and it was pretty scary because there was no money on the horizon and we had this now enormous responsibility uh, for for this wildlife yeah it's happening again yeah happening again yeah so we thought oh well let's try and raise an endowment fund um but because the land was still privately owned by the family um nobody would put money into an endowment fund because the conservancy didn't have any sort of long-term it did have a long-term guarantee but they it wasn't sure enough it didn't have a security as a conservancy itself yeah it, yeah it didn't have the security the long-term security so yeah, we as a family have actually now pretty much stepped back from the ownership of, of Lewa. So the Conservancy as a non-profit now owns the land. And uh, yeah, what we've done is like Callum and I, we we, uh, we own this footprint that we're on and we have access rights to the rest of it. But, um, and we're, we're in partnership with the Conservancy because we're, you know, we're providing an income to them. Yeah. Um, but it is, yeah, we've completely changed the structure of it. And that has actually led to lots of other positives, including the ability uh, for it to become UNESCO World Heritage. And uh, we're also IUCN red listed, aren't we, Callum? Red listed. Green, green listed. Green, yeah, sorry, green listed. Green listed. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, that's that's enabled a whole nother level of of protection, which is 
great because ultimately that's what we all care about. Yeah, yeah. And the, the protection, um, you mentioned it before with the different types of habitats there. Part of the reason that it's such a good area, not just to conserve the rhino, but the other species, is the diversity of habitats that you've got. For sure. The biodiversity is there because of that. Yeah, we've got a bit of a, um, a, f a funny one on that, you know. So uh, the BBC did a, did a series called um, Africa a few years ago with David Attenborough. Um, and they they kind of utilized different areas. So you know, the, they did one on the jungles, which was the Congo. I think the savanna was the uh, the Serengeti. The mountains was the Bali Mountains up in Ethiopia, and so on and so forth. Swamps was the Okavango. And um, they decided that they couldn't move David Attenborough around all these areas now because he was quite uh, getting on a bit. <laughs> and so they decided to find a landscape that had the majority of these environments so that he could do his pieces to camera standing in these environments. So uh, when you actually watch the, the BBC series of Africa, whenever David Attenborough is on TV, he's actually on Lewa. So uh, he, it might be talking about the Congo and he's standing in a forest, but it's the Ngarindari forest. You know, he's standing on a savanna. He's on the plains over there and, and, uh, and so on and so forth. So it's quite interesting that they chose Lewa uh, specifically because all the different ecosystems that we have, you know, it's, it's very diverse. And that's hugely important as well, isn't it? That diversity. To, to what you've got there at Lewa and yeah. to both in what you can offer the, sure. the, the yeah. visitor, but also what you've got for the wildlife and its protection as well. Yeah. Definitely. You know, we, we, you know, from a, from a, you know, zoological, biological, ecological point of view, you know, whenever you have those edges, you know, so the edges of the productive areas, so uh, the forest going into the savanna, you know, you get your forest species, you get your savanna species, but on those edges, that's where you get the mix. And so we've got riverine forests, we've got rivers, we've got swamps, we've got savannas, we've got forests, uh, high altitude moorland, you know, it, there's a little bit of everything all in this one area. Um, and so it's just it's it's very biologically diverse it's fantastic yeah and we're finding actually more and more things all the time um it's uh yeah yeah more more and more species you know whether it's it's plants or it's you know it's animals it's yeah it's fun <laughs> <laughs> is there ongoing research on that number of species and the diversity that's there then Yes, very much so. So, um, or is this just a general observation? Yeah, no, we have uh, the the Lewa Research Department. So, the the as Sophie was saying, the headquarters is you know the Lewa Conservancy itself is is very professionally run now. So, we have the the CEO of Lewa, um, Mike Watson. We have uh, the Chief Operations Officer, Dr. Tuka Jeromo, You know, who used to work for the Kenyan Wildlife Service. But we also have uh, a, a full-on um, research department here with David Kamiti. And he is really looking into, uh, they produce a very good report every quarter on uh, rhino densities, where they are, um, elephants, um, uh, lions, you know, we're obviously looking at the predator interactions. And we have a very high proportion of grevy zebra here. Yeah. And so, um, uh, in fact, I think we've got it's almost something like 30% of the world's population of grevies are um, are here on Lewa. And so, again, that interaction between lions and grevies is, is of great interest, you know, because if the lions get put on the endangered species list, then we're going to have one endangered species eating another endangered species. So they're wanting to try and, you know, figure out that dynamic. Um, and they're now Sophie's mum is a botanist and she's actually doing a, 
um, uh, a survey of all the plants on Lewa. She's grinding her way through all the different grasses at the moment. I can't remember exactly how many grass species she's got, but well over 100. Wow. Um, and she's going into all the other plants. And, and that's throwing up all sorts of new um, uh, new species. Uh, well, not new species, but new added to the list that is that, that Lewa already has. Um, from a wildlife point of view, uh, you know, we're, we're increasing our number of reptiles because, again, nobody's really looked that closely at it. So we managed to find pancake tortoises the other day, which weren't meant to be in this area. But we managed to find them wedged in amongst some rocks down in one of those valleys where there's the, the, the no roads going into it. Um, and uh, there's some interesting, you know, because we get... Up in the forest, we get the colobus monkeys, you know, whereas down here we get the, the vervet monkeys. Yeah. And then there's even some patas monkeys, which are further over towards Burana, uh, which is a neighboring ranch, which is also a wildlife area. Um, and we've now dropped the fence between us and Burana. Um, so uh, for, from a, a purposes, we, we now talk about a, the, the Lewa Burana landscape, because effectively from a wildlife conservation point of view, um, uh, it's one unit now. Uh, they they operate independently from each other, but the wildlife doesn't know that. And so yeah, uh, the rhino are now obviously uh, being settled on on Burana, and things move backwards and forwards. So that that's also quite exciting. So yeah, there there are new things being discovered, and there's a research team that are looking into that. That's great to know. Let's chat some more about the large wildlife that you've got out there. Obviously, uh, Lewa's been set up for the black rhinos, as as you've mentioned, and the gravies too. Um, being an endangered species. Uh, you just sent me a video over just before we started um, talking and there were plenty of Ellie's out there, but you've got wild dogs, um, which isn't a large population in Kenya. Cheetah as well out on the plains, I guess. Yeah. For large yeah. mammals and, and um, predators, you've got a good array of species as well, haven't you? Well, we're, we're, we're very fortunate in the, um, from, a, from a wildlife point of view that Lewa is fenced. We do have a fence that goes around the whole conservancy, um, you know, up around Burana. I think the whole area now is um, uh, 100,000 acres or, you know, around about that. Um, it's, it's quite a substantial piece of land. That fence there is to keep the rhinos in. Yeah. Um, it's not really to keep anything out, if you see what I mean. Uh, and there are actually gaps in that fence that allow the wildlife, bar the rhino, to migrate on and off Lewa. So we have an elephant corridor that links Lewa to the Mount Kenya National Park, the, the forest up there, yeah. uh, which is a very important elephant migration route that, that, that goes up the mountain. We have a, um, a hole in the fence, a couple of holes in the fence between us and, and the north, and they're actually thinking of increasing that number. Um, and what they do is they put in these massive fence posts and a little low sort of stone wall and what that means is the elephants can step over the fence posts. The other animals can squeeze between them, but the rhino are too fat and they can't jump. So uh, the rhino are effectively trapped here. <laughs> you've just answered my question because for the uninitiated, how are you going to stop a rhino? And you've just told how are you going to stop them? That's yeah. Great. So so that's that's how they sort of do it. And they have camera traps mounted on those, so they're sort of my, uh, monitoring the the movement of wildlife on and off of Lewa. Um, so from um, 
a, a, a biological point of view, you know, Lewa is able to sort of self-regulate itself in, in wildlife. So we had a lot of cheetah here for a while. We had sort of like five or six cheetah on Lewa for a large number of years, two, uh, three very big males who sort of dominated. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting that you actually saw the Grevy zebra population start to drop, you know, because we potentially, and again, they're looking into this, this isn't hard science, but um, maybe those cheetah were taking a lot of Grevy zebra foals. Well, those cheetah have now all died off. You know, they're, they're, they had fights with the lions and died and some of them moved off and, and all this kind of stuff. And so now we're starting to see the Grevy's population go back up again. Um, same goes for the lions. You know, the lions range across the, the, the landscape quite a bit, yeah. um, as do the wild dogs. Now, unfortunately, um, when we had all the issues during the last elections with um, uh, the nomadic pastoralist communities, uh, sort of coming onto wildlife areas to graze their cattle. Um, unfortunately, in Lycipia, they, they never came to Lewa, but up in Lycipia, they actually uh, uh, went into a large number of those wildlife areas. Yeah. And uh, because their dogs were carrying uh, canine distemper and rabies and things, uh, we've actually lost a large proportion of our wild dogs. And so we haven't actually seen any wild dogs. Whilst we were seeing them fairly regularly uh, since 2017, I think the last time they were seen was early 2018. Okay. Um, but I've, I'm on the, the Lycipia uh, Wild Dogs WhatsApp group, and um, they're making a comeback, you know, and so their, their numbers are already starting to increase. Well, that's so that's good, that's good. So hopefully we will have them back here again. Yeah, there yeah. were serious droughts at that time, weren't there, up further north that brought them brought the pastoralists further south as well yeah a lot of droughts and overgrazing was the main was the main driving factor on that one and and so uh, it's hard to be angry at people when they're just trying to protect their their, their livelihood but they're uh, ha having had that there are all these various knock-on effects you know with the rule of law and also you know that the damage to the wildlife via various diseases and whatnot but luckily we're, we're getting past that now and it's all recovering nicely that's good um one of the things you spoke about just then was the elephants going up towards Mount Kenya and we know that um, it's fairly heavily farmed on the lower slopes sure um, yeah. is there a good biological corridor for the elephants up to the forests there very much so yeah what what ended up happening was you know the Mount Kenya National Park almost touches Lewa anyway you know it's it's very it's very very close okay um, and um, some of those um, that farmland area that spread either side of that, you know, very fortunately for Lewa, um, some of it actually belongs to cousins of Sophie's family. Um, and then some of it also belongs to some other very good friends. And so they actually donated very kindly, sort of donated their land um, and set up this, um, helped Lewa set up this corridor to, to link the two. So if you can imagine the way, the way that I've been told, uh, and it's quite a good way of, uh, of imagining it, is, is if you can imagine northern Kenya, uh, Mount Kenya particularly, um, sort of uh, with, with regards to elephant migration, as being a bit of an hourglass. So you've got one bulb of the hourglass is Mount Kenya, a small bulb, uh, which is very important sort of dry season browsing up there for the elephants in particular up in the forest. Yeah. Um, and then you've got another very large bulb of the hourglass, which is sort of the Samburu ecosystem and further afield, you know, arguably running all the way up to the border. Um, yeah. Elephants that from that, that bulb that want to migrate to the other bulb, so from northern Kenya to, to Mount Kenya, the narrow waste is Lewa. 
And so any elephants that want to do that effectively have to pass through Lewa in order to get up there. And initially they were just breaking fences, going through farmers' fields, eating a few, you know, uh, wheat crops on the way and all this, just generally being a bit of a menace. Uh, there was one particular bull, bull elephant called um, Mountain Bull. Uh, he was a huge elephant, you know, and he, he was absolutely enormous. And he was... He was one of the driving factors for putting in this elephant corridor effectively. Um, and so it's all been fenced either side now. Um, and I believe they, they, um, the actual underpass, because it goes underneath the main road to Nunuki. So they put in an underpass underneath it and they seeded it with elephant dung. So they, they put loads of elephant dung in it to, to, to help them, you know, feel comfortable going through it. Um, and legend has it a few jam sandwiches, although that one's open to debate. Um, and these elephants within a few months, you know, within a few months, they ended up figuring it out, you know, and making their way up there. And the, the crowning glory was uh, Mountain Bull had a GPS collar fitted to him, I think, by Save the Elephants, the, the charity Save the Elephants, Subba yeah. Douglas Hamilton, her father, Ian and, and Frank Pope. Um, and they were able to monitor his movements on Google Earth from the labor headquarters. And they saw Mountain Bull finally go through this corridor and up into the forest. And they thought, yes, it's worked. You know, he was up there for a few weeks. And when he came back, he just came in a straight line back through the fields again. So um, <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it took a while, but the Yellies the now are, are, uh, are using it on a, on a very regular basis, um, which is fantastic. And future generations will learn that as well, which is great news, isn't it? Very much so. Yeah, very much so. It's interesting how far they're migrating. If they're coming right down from Samburu area, that's still a, that's a fair proportion of uh, migration to get to the forests of Mount Kenya. It shows how important those forests are to them as well. For sure. You know, very much so. They actually also observed one, I believe, from Samburu. I, I forget the elephant's name, but uh, the Save the Elephants recorded it. It almost got to Somalia before it came back again. You know, they were covering vast distances. Wow. Um, we had some very notorious... Elephants here who are great fence breakers, you know, they would end up breaking fence, not just uh, outside, uh, you know, the farmer's fields and things, but we, we've actually got to the enviable position on the Conservancy whereby the elephants know that they are safe here and they, they might spend a little bit longer um, on labor than they traditionally would do. And the vegetation is now... Um, uh, uh, is changing because of that. You know, the elephants are locking, knocking down a lot of trees and destroying a lot yeah. of the veg yeah, vegetation. Yeah. Now, uh, the, 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 the debate is still out on whether that might actually be a good thing. You know, it can actually increase the biodiversity in an area and things that people are still arguing backwards and forwards of it. But as a, as a black rhino conservancy, predominantly, that's an issue because the, the, black, the elephants are actually taking out some of the black rhino food source. Um, and so we've actually had to fence off what we, uh, what we call elephant exclusion zones. So areas where the elephants aren't allowed in, but the fences are high enough that all the other wildlife can squeeze in. Yeah. And um, it's actually, uh, um, they would, the elephants would often break in there uh, and snap those fences. Now they actually moved some of those elephants. You know, eventually they, they had enough and moved some of them to Meru, as you said. And these elephants ended up walking back from Meru. Again, you think about the route that they would have had to have taken to get back here um, to, to come all the way back to Lewa. So that was, uh, they won't be doing that again in a hurry because it uh, costs <laughs> a lot of money and it's not worth it. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> A couple of things that have been mentioned through our chat have been the Range, Northern Rangelands Trust and the Kenya Wildlife Service. 
labor and wildlife conservancies um obviously uh, the initiatives are all linked in with those but do you feel that this is also you're also working outside of kenya at all or really what you're doing there on labor is um at the forefront of what's going on um in many respects in africa in terms of wildlife conservation uh, it's quite joined up thinking to work with um, the different trusts uh, how much further afield does it run from just lewa so my observation so far is that um, lewa at the moment is strictly just within kenya um, it is definitely sort of, to an extent, a pioneer in the way that it does things, particularly from a community conservation point of view. Um, you know, the, the tagline for Lewa is as, as a catalyst for conservation. And um, we get a lot of other conservancies from not just, um, not just Kenya, but uh, Southern Africa. I think we had some Australian people come, Nigeria uh, people come and actually visit the headquarters um, and and see how things are done here on Lewa to maybe then uh, put that in, in in whichever area they are trying to protect wildlife in. So um, I would say that as a as a, a potential way of doing things, and again, it's by no means perfect. It's always a work in progress. Yeah. Um, but as a template, maybe for doing things, it's a it's a uh, other people are using it at the moment as a source of inspiration. Which is great news, isn't it? I mean, that's as much as you could hope for that. You, you know, if you're leading or at least pr providing good um, examples of working practices for the wildlife conservation, that's it's something to really to take home and be proud about. Very much so. So, that, you know, that's, yeah, the, the labor ended up, I think, um, how many years ago now was it? Four, four or five years ago, we ended up being given the IUCN. So what's that? The International Union for the Conservation of Nature. We got a green listing, which has just been renewed. So that's for... Um, awarded to wildlife areas that are exceptionally managed, managed exceptionally well, rather. Um, and so we've just re, re, um, had that re-awarded to us. Yeah. And uh, we've also, um, Labour Wildlife Conservancy itself has also been, um, uh, uh, been awarded the UN, you know, along the same lines as the UNESCO World Heritage Site, but this is uh, a biosphere um, um, protection award. Uh, and that's the... the, the a brand new thing that we've never had before so i'm still sort of learning about it myself um but it's that's gonna uh provide a lot more protection for the area too and we hear about these unesco awards or statuses how do you go about achieving them so um uh, this actually happened about the same time that the whole um the family started handing over the land to the Wildlife Conservancy itself, or the, the big sale that went through. It was called the Maleli deal, which Maleli means forever. Yep. And so it was a way of protecting Lewa, you know, uh, forever. And as part of that, they said, well, we should really try and get an extra layer of protection on Lewa, an internationally recognized layer of, uh, layer of protection on Lewa. Um, and that was um, the UNESCO World Heritage status. And so it took a long time and a lot of effort by all the guys down at the headquarters, the research department, um, the, the whole nine yards. They, they were the guys who got it. And um, I think it took almost five or six years for it to be awarded. And it uh, came into being in 2013. And uh, it was basically twofold. 
Um, it was, from a biological point of view, the important role that Lewa plays with regards to elephant migration, um, the rhino that were here. Um, but then also another big part of the, the is the as, uh, aesthetic value of Lewa. So it's now classed as an exceptionally beautiful area, basically. And that was one of the reasons why um, it got its... Um, it got its uh, protection. And this biosphere reserve is an extension of that um, uh, as well. But that's more focused on man and environment. Um, so actually, I have the, the, the thing here. So the uh, biosphere reserve is a learning place for sustainable development. Um, and we've just been awarded that one. So that's exciting too. That is really exciting, isn't it? Yeah. There can't be too many of those around or as an awards. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't think so. Yeah, as I said, you know, the Lewa headquarters told us about it the other day, so we're still trying to get our heads around it. But <laughs> it can only be a good thing. I've just noticed you're sitting there in the dark now. I guess Sophie's still outside, sitting in the dark as well, and probably had a sundowners. Oh, <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm, I'm watching watching the evening appear. <laughs> yeah. So with sundowners in mind, can you tell us how Lewa fits into a typical safari holiday or how you see it fitting into a typical safari holiday out in Kenya? Sophie, do you want to go? Uh, yeah. So, um, well, actually, I think you're better at this because of your experience, no, Callum. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> can I have that in writing, please? Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so um you know, Lewa, Lewa sort of to a certain extent can fit in e either way. You know, as we mentioned earlier on, the beauty of Lewa is that it's private land um, and you can get out of the vehicle and get out on foot. So we t tend to see it in two potential ways. Um, sometimes we are the first stop for people. So often people uh, will get off their international flight. They might have a night in Nairobi and then, and then they'll come up here. Um, and they do that because we are quite a good way for people to particularly those who haven't been on safari before to get into the swing of things. Yeah. Yeah. So um, people are able to, you know, they're, they're in a, a room potentially rather than a tent. And so they feel a little bit more secure. And then, uh, you know, after three or four days here, they're starting to get a bit blasé, you know, maybe about the wildlife and <laughs> are ready to continue onto a more maybe adventurous camp or, or so on and so forth. So that, that sometimes is, is the way, but more often than not, um, uh, we are at the end of somebody's safari. So somebody might have been down in the Masai Mara first. They might have been in Amboseli. Uh, they might have been somewhere else where the main activity is game driving. And so they've been doing, you know, maybe four hours in the morning, four hours in the afternoon in yeah. the car, and they're just ready to get out of the vehicle. And so they, they come up here and then that's when we get them galloping across the plains on horses and camels and on foot and helicopters and, you know, whatever it may be that they, that they have um, got in their mind to do um, to actually sort of explore the landscape. So quite often that happens. And that also happens with families a lot as well. So if you've got particularly um, <clears throat> young children, um, often travel agents will suggest they go to the Mara first while the animals are still exciting and new and get the game drives out the way uh, while it's, ooh, look, there's, there's, another, there, there's another impala or there's another uh, zebra. But by the time the kids are getting bored of seeing a, a zebra or an impala, uh, it's time to move on somewhere else and, and get them out doing stuff. And so, again, that works quite well where they then come up here and uh, we can get the kids, kids out and about. So 
and, and up there they'll see gravy zebra instead. Exactly, and reticulated giraffe, and uh, geranook, <laughs> and uh, bison oryx, and uh, yeah. all these all these more unusual sort of northern dry country species, and rhino, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm teasing you. Of course, it's it's very different. And everywhere you go out in Kenya, the diversity there is just um, it's great. It's stunning. You, you can't get much more different between the north and south of Kenya. It's it's uh, it's amazing. No, yeah, I do believe that if you if you're going to the Mara, you've also got to you've got to travel north, perhaps visit the Rift Valley, but also get out of the Rift Valley and, and go north as well for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a completely different environment. Even going from here to you know maybe Sarara up in the Matthews Mountains or Samburu or you know our friends the the Frankums who have Omalo, you know those environments again are completely different from here. And um, that's the most common comment that we get, you know, from our guests is is each area is is vastly different from the next, from the veg, you know, the vegetation, the soil, the wildlife, just the general feel. It's, uh, it's Africa as, uh, you know, Africa in one country is what they often call Kenya. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got a couple of last questions for you. Um, one, I guess, um, is related to the Conservancy and also, of course, Labour House. And that is, what's the future for Kenya's wildlife tourism in your eyes? In, in, our, in our eyes, we, we've been having some very interesting chats about this. Sophie and I have been in on a, a few meetings, particularly with the, um, you know, the situation with the travel ban with COVID-19 and, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, Kenya is having a moment to take a step back and actually look at itself and, um, and adjust its thinking and maybe the trajectory that it was on. And the Kenyan Tourist Board has been doing some very good webinars and things that we've all been listening in on. And, um, you know, uh, I, from, from a conservation point of view, um, the future of Kenya is, is uh, corridors, is, is linking wildlife areas. So, um, you know, we, from a genetics point of view, we need to start getting all these wildlife populations mixing again. And so that's where the Northern Rangelands Trust comes in, where the, the Nature Conservancy doing their work up on Loisaba and, yeah. and, uh, and, and, and those areas linking us to Mount Kenya, potentially linking Mount Kenya to the Aberdares National Park, all this kind of stuff from a wildlife perspective, that's definitely how things are moving. But I think Kenya as a whole... Um, Low impact tourism is the is the way that the majority of feel, people here feel they would like to go, and so again we want to try and protect our areas. The, the Mara is the jewel in the crown of Kenya, and yet it's been abused for a large number of years. And so people are now saying, well, maybe this is our opportunity to adjust that and um, reset the clock um, on on the Mara and try and think of a better way of doing this. And so I, I think it's a very Whilst it's, it's a dreadful time, it's also a very exciting time. That that sounds really positive that um, the Kenyan government's getting involved in this. You, you can tra so often travel into the Mara and even in the conservancy, some of the con concessions and conservancies around it, it just feels a bit too busy for the amount of wildlife that it's sustaining down there um, in terms of tourism and, and vehicle movements and things like that. Um, certainly from a wildlife and wilderness perspective, it's whilst it's a spectacle and it's still a stunning location to go to it's it kind of doesn't quite fit in some respects 
so what you're doing there up in the north and I'm thinking about corridors and the greater conservation throughout a wide, a much, much wider area. Because let's face it, the Mara by itself is fairly isolated down there, although it sits on top of the Serengeti um, ecosystem. Um, to have you linking up with the Aberdares or through Mount Kenya and then further north is a fantastic initiative. Potentially as far down as the rift, you know, and, and I think in the south of Kenya, you know, all the private reserves that are that are forming around about the Mara uh, uh, to a certain extent um, are, are leading the way, are, are showing the right direction, you know, limiting the number of camps in there, uh, organizing the vehicles better around sightings. And, and they're definitely showing how it's be, being done, you know. So, for example, when we were at Elephant Pepper Camp, we saw the complete transition from um, Koyaki Group Branch, as it was there, to the formal Mara North Conservancy and it was night and day, um, our observations on the changes that happened during that, that period uh, with regards to wildlife and, and uh, how it was, the actual landscape was being managed. So I, I think there is, there is room for, for a lot to be done down there. And, and the, the will is there. The pe people want it to happen you know, within the safari industry, within the conservation industry here. I, I think it's a, an exciting time to, to, to be looking into. But there was, yeah. you know, there was one, who was it? Um, Frank Pope from Save the Elephants was doing an elephant survey down in the Maasai Mara and um, they were trying to find some um, collared elephants there and his aeroplane has all the radio um, tracking equipment fitted to it. And so while he was up flying around looking for these elephants, some I think some researchers, I believe, from Tanzania, some wild dog researchers from Tanzania said, you know, one of our wild dogs was seen coming into the Mara. Could you just check this frequency and see if you can find it anywhere? And uh, he couldn't find the, the wild dog in the Mara at all. But when he flew over Hell's Gate National Park, uh, north of Nairobi, you know, in the Rift Valley there, it starts bleeping. Yeah, yeah. And this wild dog had gone from the Serengeti to Hell's Gate National Park. So maybe there is the opportunity for wildlife corridors. You never know if the wild dogs can do it. Ah, but that's interesting. I've heard stories in Finland of wolves going from central Finland on the Russian border down towards St. Petersburg, covering over a thousand kilometers and then ending up just eight, ten kilometers from where their original denning site was. Um, as and they were, you know, it's basically juveniles going walkabout. Walkabout, it's amazing, isn't it? It's absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. I wonder if uh, another canine species is doing a similar thing as uh, an adolescent. Yeah, quite, quite possibly. And, uh, you know, with the wild dogs, it's the females that generally get kicked out, you know, and so it's the females that are wandering around. So she was uh, a brave lady that went all the way through that farmland. Uh, unbelievable. Yeah, no, incredible. Well, I think uh, we're almost uh, should round this up. But uh, one one last question is: You live in an absolutely stunning area. You've got the young children up there as well. Um, I know you're homeschooling and you've been taking them out on safaris at the moment. But where do you go when you get away from Lewa as a family? And uh, New York, Paris, <laughs> Tokyo. Oh no, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Soph, do you want to? You 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 can do this one. Yeah, I. To be honest, actually, we we go uh, we we go seriously back to nature. Now, I think our favourite thing is <laughs> just taking really basic, simple camping kit and uh, and going somewhere extremely remote, having an adventure along the way or two, and um, yeah, just uh, yeah, just, yeah, just a, again a, another level of immersion and. Um, Whilst, you know, we go to London and we go to the theatre, we absolutely love it. Don't get me wrong. Um, yeah, I think the more uh, it's just being out there in a really simple way is good for the soul.
<laughs> I couldn't agree more. Yeah, we tend to load up our Land Rover with camping kit. We shovel in the kids and we'll, we'll head right away up north, north of Samburu, right to those remote community areas up there. And uh, we drive along all the sandy luggers up there, the, the riverbeds. Yeah. And um, we go and camp out you know, in little mosquito net tents underneath the stars. And, and the kids get out to mooch around and we set up camera traps and uh, on the where the elephants have been digging the sand out of the river to get to the water and see what comes in and... Uh, they're all becoming real rock hounds, our children. So we've got them a rock tumbler. <laughs> and so they uh, go out looking for all the um, tiger's eye and amethysts and all those kind of things that we find up in the north. So it's, <laughs> yeah, no news, no shoes, no mobile reception, uh, you know, back back to basics. Sounds very much like us with our family. We're back out in wild camping if we can. I mean, the wild camping at the moment has been at the bottom of the garden. But uh, usually we like to try and get away and camp wild somewhere. Oh, right. yeah. yeah. I'm itching for Dartmoor to open back up again right now so we can escape for a few days. Right. Well, that's a pretty wild and woolly place right there. <laughs> it's been great. I've really enjoyed chatting with you both. Um, it's been really informative. Uh, we've had a good time, I think. Um, thank you both very much. So, so much for doing this for us. It's been great talking to you. Thanks again. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, no, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. I've thoroughly enjoyed talking with both Sophie and Callum from Labour House. And again, this has been a truly informative experience across many aspects of safaris and conservation initiatives. A theme we aim to continue with interviews from around the world. Thank you for listening and remember to subscribe and share this podcast. And if you've any comments, then do email me at podcasts at wildlifewilderness.com. Thank you again for listening and I hope you can join me again soon. Wildlife and Wilderness is at all protected. <laughs>